Now, as I go to the message, before I pray, I want to just tell you where the title came from. Growing up in New York City years ago, uh, and some of you that are older uh, may remember where this title came from, there was a song written, I don't remember the name of the group, but the title of the song was Love on a Two-Way Street. And the lyrics was, I found love on a two-way street and lost it on a lonely highway. And a number of years ago, when I was invited to do a family, uh, family, family life weekend, I was down in, Orlando, down in Miami, Florida, and I chose titles that were synonymous to some of the songs that I used to play when I was a disc jockey. One of those was, if you don't know me by now, you'll never, never know me. Come on, old people, say amen. You may remember that song. And then another one was, there's a thin line between love and hate. Anybody remember that? But this one was most instrumental in talking about relationships, wives, husbands, singles. And it's love on a two-way street. So this morning, I want to pray. We're going to begin with some light-hearted stories. And then I want to pray that you put on your, your uh, diving outfit because we're going to dive deeply into the Word of God as we consider four examples in Scripture that leave indelible lessons about marriage, relationships, good and bad decisions, but overall the redeeming power of God to turn anything around to His glory and honor. If we hang in there, God can bring... Uh, God can bring a blessing out of a darkest situation. God can turn sadness into joy, failures into successes. So bow with me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Loving Father, gracious God, as we consider the message for this morning, love on a two-way street, we do pray that even though the street is two-way, that we are moving in the same direction as our spouse and as the Lord, speak to our hearts, help us to hear clearly, because sometimes hearing is selective, and we pray that the Spirit of God this morning will be in charge of what we hear and how we put it into practice. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Our scripture reading for today is in Matthew, in Mark chapter 12, verse 29 to 31. This would be considered the summary of the commandments of God. The summary of the Ten Commandments of God. Jesus answered him. The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And verse 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. Let's read the second part together, verse 31. And the second is like it. You shall, together, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. When you look at what the Lord spoke to those who were standing by, Matthew records it, Mark records it, John doesn't record it in the detail that Matthew and Mark does, but he surely doesn't leave it out because John was the one that simply made it very clear. God is love. He who does not love does not know God because God is love. 
So these two principles, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. When you get married, you discover your closest neighbor is your spouse. She's there, and he is there. When you are single, your neighbor varies based on how long your relationship exists, based on whether or not the young lady that you're thinking about is thinking about you, or whether the young man you're thinking about is thinking about you. Your, your neighbor transitions maybe from one person to the next in the context of relationships. Now, we know that the apostle as he continues on in the New Testament work, when he continues to go and carry the gospel forth, we know that this disciple is saying that if there's anything that is going to be accomplished in the Christian's life, it is going to be putting God first and putting our spouses and our neighbors and our children second. But today, I want to talk about to the married people first and then the single people, and those that may have been married more than once, or they who, those who may uh, be a widow or a widower, I want to try to cover as many avenues as I can, because God's love is not limited to any particular group of people. God's love is available for all of us. But as the sun shines through the seasons of the year, we should allow the Son of God to shine through the seasons of our relationships. There's a book that I strongly recommend to couples. It's called The Four Seasons of Marriage. Everyone that's married go through all four seasons. It begins, what season do you think it begins with? Somebody tell me. Summer. That wedding day. Everybody's excited. The wedding day. But summer sometimes is quickly followed by autumn. And in some cases, autumn is fo followed by winter. When things get really bad. But praise God, winter is followed by spring, and spring is followed by summer. Every marriage goes through all four seasons. If you've been married more than a day, you understand exactly what I mean. You can be newly married somewhere along the way when you stop being overly polite. You know how young people are when they get married. He's opening the door, opening the door for her, and she's saying, Yes, and she's picking up his socks for the first two months until she gets tired of it. We all go through the seasons of marriage. We all go through the seasons of relationships. But it always begins by this statement of abandonment. And I've always tried to find out why the Lord said what he did. And I'll tell you later on in the message why Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 has been written primarily focusing on the action of the husband. It says, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become what? One flesh. Now you wonder why did it didn't say, why did it not say the woman shall leave her father and mother and be joined to her husband? This scripture is a picture of the very first act in the life of Jesus. He left his father, and he came to the earth to be joined to his wife, the church. It was impossible for the church to go meet the Father in heaven, so the Father came. This is an example. God is saying that the husbands should follow the example of God and be joined to his wife. And we'll find out in the message today the ups and downs that we all experience 
in our marriage relationships. But I was reading, and I've throughout the years done so many weddings. I've also uh, done weddings for people that I have no idea who they are. I was invited once when we lived in California to be the, um, to be the, uh, the wedding, the entertainment for a Chinese wedding. I didn't know anybody in the wedding. I was supposed to be the joke master and the guy that sang music and kept the whole ceremony going. And it was there in San Francisco. And it was quite, uh, it was quite a learning experience to see how different cultures, cultures celebrate their wedding day. During the course of the, um, the reception, the bride went through about three or four different changes of these amazing oriental garments. And I thought, wow, we could learn something. It was quite an interesting thing. But I remember through the years some of the, some of the puns that I used at some of these wedding receptions. And as a guy that no one knows, it's a risk to say something funny at a reception and you have no idea who the people are. They just heard about me and decided to reach out and hire me to be the wedding singer and the joke master and the guy to keep the crowd going. And so I remember saying, I said, you know, marriage is not a word. It's a sentence. It's a life sentence. And I was waiting and, you know, Chinese people don't laugh quickly. Or Asians don't laugh quickly in some cultures. So I was waiting. I said, oh, man, I'm not going to make it to the second joke or not. And somebody smiled and somebody chuckled and everybody finally laughed. But the reality is marriage is a life sentence. Now, I'm not telling you where you serve in that sentence. <laughs> but marriage is intended by God to be a life sentence. Somebody also says marriage is an institution in which the man loses his bachelor's degree and the woman gets her master's degree. <laughs> Bob said amen. Uh, because, because Alice is not here. But I know Alice is watching. <laughs> She's watching. You know, guys, our wives have a lot of power over us. I've heard those phrases that I totally despise. Happy wife, happy life. Somebody recently changed it to say happy life, happy wife. If your life is happy, husband and wife should be happy together, right? But it's very, it's very restraining for the guy to, you know, be always saying, well, Mama bear, when mama bear's happy, then everybody else is happy. That's, hot. that's not a marriage. That's a hostage takeover. We should never allow the, the joy of the wife to be the paramount focus in the marriage because the guy becomes just a servitude, a person of servitude. What else do you need, hon? No problem. Anything you need. And I've seen guys, I was walking through Walmart today, and uh, I still have the freedom in my marriage when we go to Walmart uh, yesterday. My wife goes to the fruit and vegetable section. I go to the electronic section. Come on, guys, help me out. I need an amen right there. You got to have a, a secure enough relationship to know that I could be on the other side of the store and things are fine. But I watch, I observe very carefully how some of the guys that are walking with their wives, and I don't see many of them smiling. They're pushing the cart, and she's making all the decisions. I thought, wow, why don't she let him go to the electronic section? He might, or maybe go to the tools, or maybe go to the automotive section. I saw one gentleman yesterday, he just looked as sad, like he's on his way to a funeral or just left one. I'm thinking, but he's with his wife. Why don't he look happier than that? 
Well, when we walk to Walmart, you know, I, I spend about five minutes in the fruit and vegetable section with Angie, and then I say, I'll catch you later. I'm going to the computer section, to the electronics section, and to the tools. You'll meet me over in automotive. Amen, guys. Amen. You got to have a good relationship. And then I say, then I, I say, now call me when you're ready. And I, I say, you're doing okay. Well, I'm going to the front, and I meet you at the cash register. And I bring my things, and she brings her things. We, we enjoy each other's company, but... Marriage is, in fact, a place where the guy loses his bachelor's degree, and in many instances, the wife gets the master's degree. A little boy was at a wedding looking at his mom, and he says, Mommy, why does the girl wear white? And his mom said, the bride is wearing white because this is the happiest day of her life. And you know how children are. They keep looking, and so, Mommy, why is the guy wearing black? <laughs> and that's a, that's a strange thing. You know, if it's the happiest day of your life, uh, Ben, maybe you should wear white too. <laughs> but, you know, I wore white because it was the happiest day of my life. My wife and I wore white. Thank you, honey, because it was the happiest day for both of us. And here we are 39 years later through thick and thin, highs and lows, bad days and good days, through walls and mountaintops. We are still here today. Amen, somebody. So there are many ways that marriages get started. I was reading a story about a groom. It says, and I'm going to read the story verbatim. It's a very interesting story. I look for really good stories that keep your attention. This one is wonderful. During the wedding rehearsal, the groom approached the pastor with an unusual offer. Quote, look, I'll give you $100 if you change the wedding vows. When you get to the part where I'm supposed to promise to love and honor and obey and be faithful to her forever, I'd appreciate it if you just leave that out. So he passed the minister a $100 bill and walked away satisfied. On the wedding day, when it came time for the groom's vows, the pastor looked at the young man in the eyes and said, will you promise to prostrate yourself before her? <laughs> Obey her every command and every wish. Serve her breakfast in bed every morning of your life. And swear eternally before God and your lovely wife that you will not ever, ever look at another woman as long as you both shall live. And the groom was, he, he gulped and looked around and said in a tiny voice, yes. <laughs> then he leaned toward the pastor and said, yeah, man, I got, we had a deal. Pastor said, yeah, you gave me $100, but your wife made a better deal. <laughs> <laughs> you know, marriages are unusual. They're beautiful, beautiful celebrations. They're beautiful celebrations. And uh, I have always said that um, in America, as sad as the reality is, and today marriages are at an all-time low because a lot of people are not getting married any longer. Young people are living together. And then we have on the other side, unfortunately, men marrying men and women marrying women. It's an unusual world we're living in today. And marry, marriage has been tainted by society, by tradition, by the whims of people's preferences, and the world is an unusual place today. But if you notice, the only two things that God blessed in the Garden of Eden are under attack today. And this morning in our Sabbath school class, we looked at the many ways that the Sabbath is under attack. Remember that? Our Sabbath school class, we looked at a couple of videos on how ministers are trying to explain away the Sabbath. 
Well, sadly enough, in our world today, many are trying to explain away marriage the way that God intended it to be. And they're saying, as long as we love the other person, that's all that is necessary. Well, God didn't change the Sabbath, the parameters of the Sabbath, and God didn't change the marriage and the parameters of the marriage. But let's consider and look at some classic examples in the Bible. We're going to look at one of them. Let's go to the book of Judges, chapter 14. And we're going to consider the first character. I think I could say the word character in his, in his place because this is a very interesting story. Okay? Right after Joshua, you have the book of Judges. Judges chapter 14. We're going to consider the strongest, weakest man that ever lived. His name is Samson. Samson. That name, I have an entire sermon on Samson. But I'm going to just include him as one of the four examples today. Look at uh, Judges chapter 14, and let's look at verses 1 and 2 together. Now Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Verse 2. So he went up and told his father and mother, saying, Hmm. I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines now. Therefore, get her for me as a wife. Now, you might think that's unusual, but the way that weddings were done today, in those days, they were arranged marriages. The mother and the father chose for the groom, the bride, that he would be marrying. So he went down to Timnah. He saw a woman of the Philistines, and right off the bat, Samson was a man chosen of God, and they were not to intermarry with people of other races. Because it's clear, and we'll see what would happen after that. Samson said, get her for me. And he made it clear, when you look at this class, when you look at the Samson class, this class appears to be strong, but on closer examination, you find this. Externally strong, inwardly weak. Not everybody with muscles is strong. I'm going to say amen to that because I don't have a lot of muscles. I mean, I cannot enter any kind of contest and win. But you don't have to look externally strong because God is calling us to be inwardly strong. This class is externally strong, inwardly weak. They may have a strong position, but weak judgment, short-sighted, persuasive, determined, bent on getting his or her own way, profess to know God's plans, but follow his or her own plan. In the end, the marriage is summed up in one word, regret. And what is regret in Samson's case? You know the story, and I'll read some more about his story. Regret means to think that you got all that you bargained for only to realize that you ended up with more than you bargained for. What a story. The reason why Samson wanted her is he said in verse 3, and Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she pleases me how? Well. Well, you know, the final choice he made was Delilah. What was her name? Delilah. I don't think he would make that statement again after he ended up blind, grinding at the wheel in a Philistine prison. I don't think he would say that again, get her for me, she pleases me well. 
Ralph Waldo Emerson said, a man's wife has more power over him than the state does. A man's wife has more power over him, over him than the state does. What did he mean by that? Very few people go to the courthouse and say, now before I get married, what I want to do is I'm going to go ahead and read all the laws on the books that I have to abide by before I make this declaration of marriage to him or to her. You know, if we did, it'll terrify us. But the reason why we don't is because when love supersedes the law, then we're not marrying someone because we feel that we could abide by the law. We're marrying someone because we believe that God in our lives can lead us to live in harmony with the law. The basis is love. Samson said, get her for me. So what are the lessons that we can learn from Samson? There are a number of them, and I'll spend a little time on Samson because you know the story all too well. What amazes me is somewhere in the story, when you read the story about Delilah continuing to try to find his weakness, and remember this, she did not defeat Samson at his point of weakness. She defeated Samson at his point of strength. She didn't say, where does your weakness lie? She says, show me where your strength lies. So if you think that you're going to fall at your weakest point, no, you're not. The thing that you admire the most, that you determine least to do, is where you are being studied. Samson was being studied by Delilah at the point of his weakness, his commitment to God. She said, tell me where your strength lies. And I don't know if you've read the story. Sometimes in the story, I want to slap Samson upside his head. Anybody ever felt that way? I mean, his head is in her lap. And she does this over and over. Samson, tell me where your strength lies. And he tells a lie. And she says, the Philistines are upon thee. The Phil and he wakes up and just breaks the cords. And she says it again. I, I kind of want to say, does he not get what she's trying to do? Anybody get that? Does he not know what she's trying to do? If your wife or the woman you're with asks you where your strength lies and it turns out that she's trying to get you arrested, somewhere along the way you got to say, nah, this ain't right. <laughs> and you got to say those three words, I'm out of here. But somewhere along the way, he is so, and this is what happens when you ignore God's word. You can become so blinded that the devil is telling you what he's going to do with you, and you can't even get it. Where does your strength lies? And many a man did not fall at the point of their weakness. They fell at the point of their strength. So what was the lesson of, of Samson? Here's one of the lessons I draw from him. What looks good, gentlemen, is not always good. Because nowadays, I feel bad for these young guys that are... I feel bad for guys, period. Amen. Come on, help me out. You got to have some sanctified eyes. <laughs> am I telling the truth? Come on, Jeff, give me an amen. Charlotte, look at that. They, they are safe because they are safe. You got to have some sanctified eyes just to go to the store today. Because the devil has taken over the fashion industry. 
The stuff people wear nowadays would be considered stockings in my day. Could somebody put something else over that? Help me out, ladies. Y'all should be saying amen better than I am. And, 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 and then to exacerbate that, we have Facebook and Twitter and TikTok, where it seems like there is a demon of sensuality that has taken over the female community. Excuse me, I'm not talking about all the women. Praise God for the godly women. Because you, be, you have to want to be godly nowadays not to dress a certain way. Like I was doing this family seminar down in Miami, Florida. And um, on Sunday, I was talking to the guys only. They said, Pastor, we don't want any women there. We got, we got to talk about men's issues. Because Friday and Sabbath morning was the whole church. Friday night was... Um, love on a two-way street, Sabbath was, if you don't know me by now, on Sunday, there's a thin line between love and hate. That was the topic for the guys. And so we had this guy that was, he was probably, he would have been Zacchaeus in the Bible days. He was a little guy. And so we had a question and answer period as I walked through all the principles of relationships. And he said, Pastor, can we ask some hard questions? And he's in church in Miami. Could I put the context together? Miami is never cold. Cold in Miami is like 61 degrees. Some people know what I'm talking about. Miami is... Miami is never cold. And so he's in church on Sabbath morning. He said, Pastor, Pastor, I have a question. What do you do when you go to church on Sabbath morning and you're trying to think about God? And the women up front are not helping. I said, what do you mean? He said, pastor, the tops are low. The skirts are high. The stage is up. I don't forgot about God. And he was honest. And I said, my brother, you need to lift up your eyes unto the hills. (laughs) For whence cometh your help? He said, that's the problem, because I'm so short (laughs) that when I lift up my eyes, I'm chest high (laughs) with most of the women in church. I said, well, you and your pastor have to deal with that one. I don't know. It's hard. Amen, gentlemen? Ladies, we're going to ask you for help. If y'all are going to be up here, dress like you know you're going to be higher than the guys. Thank you, ladies. Get the bulletin. Give you a chance to breathe. Because we've got to help. The the men are going to need your help to make the kingdom. But I'm also saying to the men, you got to pray for sanctified eyes. Because your heart might be saying, look now. You got to say, I ain't looking. I ain't looking. I learned. I'm a man. And we had a Bible worker in New York that was sitting down with the ladies and saying, a lady, speaking to the ladies, and she said to the ladies, as a lady to the ladies, ladies, do you not know 
that God designed men to be attracted by what they see. That's how God built men. So ladies, you ought to understand that as Christian women, not to dress in such a way that you become a stumbling block. And men, also pray for sanctified eyes. Because just because she there, you don't have to look. Okay, y'all can breathe, I'm going to move on. What looks good is not always good for you. What you see is not always what you're going to get. You can't always trust your eyes. You can't always trust your eyes because you can't see the heart. Let me explain what I mean. I've had a lot of guys say, when I married her, she just changed. What do you mean? How long did it take? One guy said it took a week. After we said, I do, I don't know who she was. Because she said, I'm going to cook for you. I'm going to clean for you. He said, after we got married, she hasn't cooked or cleaned. I said, then why don't you just buy her a cookbook? Or take her to some cooking classes. And there's some people, uh, we, we, we watched, uh, we like the house channel, my wife and I. And they're... Um, it always surprises us when we see these beautiful homes and the women always want these wonderful kitchens and they say, but my husband will love that kitchen. And I thought, what do you mean your husband will love the kitchen? In some homes, wives don't cook. And it is still true today. The way to a man's heart in many cases is through his stomach. That's why I'm still married 39 years later. <laughs> Amen, Jason. <laughs> Jason ain't marrying anybody that can't cook. Come on, say amen, Jason. If you can't cook, you could look like the queen of Sheba. He ain't saying I do. He needs some food. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, my wife, I do not mess with the kitchen. I would, I would, I would, I would sweep the roof of the house before I cook a meal because I don't want to mess up. I got a good thing going on in the kitchen. My wife makes, everything she makes is good. Some of you eat, this is a kind of oxymoron, some of you eat veggie meat. There's no such thing, by the way. It's an oxymoron. Just say vegetarian substitutes. Okay? And by the way, God, doesn't want us, God does not want us to get stuck on the substitutes. It's just a bridge to the other side. Some people are stuck on the bridge. But if you're stuck on a bridge, my wife knows how to make that, make that bridge stuff. That has that good old Jamaican curry. Thank God for wives that can cook. Amen. Coney and I didn't hear you say amen. <laughs> he eating at our house today. Thank God for wives that cook. Amen. Amen, Jeff. Amen, Donna and Ron. Let me stop calling it because I might mess up and call the wrong couple. But praise God for wives that cook. And my wife, sometimes my wife experiments, and I have the freedom to say, honey, I, I, I don't like that. She experimented on something yesterday. I don't know what it was. She said, that's what I get for trying other people's recipes. <laughs> she said, no, nah. I said, no, nah, that was great. But it ain't happened. <laughs> we love each other. We could be very open and candid. Ladies, let me give you an example. Be such a wife that your husband can tell you anything. And not fear being locked in the closet or being put on hiatus. You don't, you, well, that, if that's the case, you and I eating for the next two days, you cook your own food. 
No, if you don't like it, be free to say it. Oh, why am I in this topic? Why am I messing with people in their marriages? But when you believe, like Samson, that you have better sight than God, you will end up with no sight at all. When you think you are strong enough to handle anything, you'll meet the very woman that is strong enough to handle you. But it is not until you confront your source of your weakness that you'll discover the source of your strength. I don't know, it doesn't ever talk about how well Delilah cooked. I don't think she cooked at all because they were connected for the wrong reason. Samson finally realized that preferring his own desires was a sure way to become weak and a sure way to ensure his downfall. What's the, what's the answer there? Don't only read about God's plan, follow God's plan. And women, you have to have a strong constitution too. Don't just marry any guy because he, don't marry guys because they have money. You could get a loan from a bank with less interest. <laughs> right? So I want to marry him because he's got a nice job, he's got a nice car, he's, he's, he's really, he's cute. If that's the reason you marry him, no, no, you got to make sure that that man loves the Lord. Because all that stuff, I've, I've spoke to a lady not too long ago, oh, a couple of years ago in Florida, and she said, we were doing something, I forgot what it was, we were doing a marriage seminar in Michigan, the Michigan camp meeting, and it was hundreds of people there, my wife and I were doing the marriage seminar together. It's called to have and to hold on. And a lady came afterwards and said, could you, could you pray for my husband? I said, well, sure, where is he? She said, he's at home. And she said, well, he's not a Christian. He's not an Adventist. He's never come to church with me, and we've been married 65 years. I said, so how many times has he gone to church with you? Probably once or twice in 65 years. So why did you marry him? She said, you know what? I ignored God's voice. I thought I could fix him. Don't marry projects. <laughs> don't marry projects. If, they, if you don't like the way they are, you ain't going to change them. Only God is going to change them. Y'all making me go Brooklyn in my, 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 my dialect. If you don't like the way they are at that moment, don't think that your kiss can make them holy. Amen. It ain't going to work. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell the people online who that is, making all that noise. <laughs> make sure that you not only read God's plan. What I like about my wife, Angie, well, we, Angela, Angie, you call her Angela, Angie, Angie is my word. You call her Angela. <clears throat> but you could call her Angie, too. She just gave you permission. She did not want to marry anybody that did not have a commitment to the Lord. I was a partier, gambler, pool hustler, disc jockey, living for the world when we met. And she invited me to her house for family worship. I couldn't come for any other reason. I was invited to family worship until I finally gave family worship. And we were baptized together at 19. And it's been a journey. Because I lived for the world. And through the years, after 38 years of marriage, I think I finally got all the bugs out. Amen, honey? I think I finally got all the bugs out. But you know what? 
You got to let God humble you. Because nobody could talk to you like God. If God is speaking to you as a husband and you ignore him, you'll only prolong your foolishness. But if God is bringing conviction to you and you hear God's voice, let God humble your life. Because Solomon, at the end of his life, I mean, not Solomon, Samson, at the end of his life, his only prayer was, Lord, use me this one more time. God had greater plans for Samson than Samson had for himself. But God used him at the closing moments of his life. Unfortunately, he defeated the Philistines and, and defeated more people in his death than in his life. But that was not God's plan for his life to end that way had he only chosen God's plan. Now we go to the next one, David. <laughs> David. I could summarize David's life with the very short phrase, one look too many. <clears throat> Don't worry, I'm going to let you all out of here. <clears throat> but look at this one. 2 Samuel 11, verse 2 and 3. I'm always amazed how the Bible puts these words in there. Then it happened. Mm, it sure did happen, didn't it? Then it happened. Don't miss those little words. Those are some powerful introductory, un introductory words. Then it happened. It sure did happen. And to this very day, we can't forget what happened. <clears throat> One evening, that David rose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. Ooh, wonderful moon. Ooh. <sighs> and from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful to behold. One look too many. David looked to the left, didn't see anybody. Looked to the right, didn't see anybody. He should have looked up. The eyes of the Lord roamed to and fro throughout the whole earth. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And this is where his coattail should have gotten pulled. And someone said, isn't she Bathsheba, the daughter of, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? He told him right away, yo, yo, no, yo, yo, she married. David said, <clears throat> but I'm the king. See, I call the shots. I know who she is. And you know how bad that story got. From lust, to adultery, to deception, he got the woman pregnant, called her husband home from the battlefield, tried to cover his sin by trying to get her husband to lay with her. She had already been impregnated, but Uriah had a godly heart. Amen. He said, I can't do that while my men are on the battlefield fighting. So he said, okay. Then it went from deception to manipulation put him at the head of the battle and kill him so he won't find out. What he failed to realize is he not only should have given an account to Uriah, but David realized later on he had to give an account to God. 
lust, adultery, deception, manipulation, and then murder. And Jonathan told him a parabolic story because they had such a good relationship. What, 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 do, you, what do you think about this story? Uh, Nathan, thank you. What do you think about this story? And David heard the story and says, who would do such a thing like that? He said, you're the man. Let me take you down the categorical understanding of David's life. This, land, this kind is controlled by the dark desires of the heart. You know, today, the walking on the roof today is paramount to pornography on the internet. There are some men that are on the roof in the dark times of their home, or on their phones, or on their tablets. That's their roof. And the world has found a way to get men to be looking after women that may be beautiful, but it's the first step to the destruction of their marriage, their hearts. Because when you go down that path, you lose the natural joy of a God-ordained physical relationship. And you can't have a normal relationship any longer because you went on the roof, on your phone, on your iPads, on the Internet. And the devil is wrapping you up into a darker and darker and darker and darker place. That's why a few years ago, we did a series at our church in the Fellowship Hall. Actually, it was over the room there about how to battle pornography. And... Um, we had some people attending, but it's such a, such a touchy subject. Not a lot of people came out. How to be victorious in this day and age. Brethren, we've got to pray for our eyes to be sanctified because the world is coming at us. And sometimes you don't, you don't have to go looking for it. It just comes looking for you. You've got to flip the next page when you see something that you, like you want to do like David. Oh. No, flip it. It's on television. Some commercials nowadays. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You're watching something very innocuous and all of a sudden. I, I tell my wife, turn it now. Because you know what? If you let that door open, it's going to start planting seeds in your mind. That's going to make your spouse seem undesirable. Don't play with the devil. His desire is to do to men in the church today what he did to ancient Israel. They could win every battle until the Philistine women came into the camp. They beat all the powerful, heavily armed soldiers. The devil said, let's send some miniskirt wearing Philistines into the camp with stretch pants. And they fell. These stories are serious in the scriptures. David is the kind of class that does not resist temptation when it arises. There are beautiful women, but remember, if she ain't your wife, leave her alone. Amen. Okay, no amens are necessary. You had three seconds. This is the kind that listens to the voice of the seducer, not the voice of the Savior. This is the kind that the pursuit of happiness overrides the penalty of sin. And let me make a point right here. You may fall, but God is a forgiving God. Get up. Fix that thing. 
and determined not to do it again. And God can give you power and strength to overcome anything. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm I'm not, I'm not, I'm on my way, honey. This is the kind of class that thinks there is no actual sin in concentrated looking. A young pastor, when I was a young man in California in Fairfield, we had a pastor named Ezra Mendinghall. You don't know him, but I just want to mention his name because my wife knew who I'm speaking about. And he was doing the youth week of prayer at our church. And he said, here's where, here's where sin comes in. He said, he said, when you pass the shoulder, it's sin. Did you get that? She's walking. You go, mm. He said, when you pass the shoulder, you just started sinning. <laughs> he said, you might see her coming, but don't look at her going away. It's okay. It's a little tea. We'll get it afterwards. Don't worry about it. Devil don't like what I'm saying. That's okay. And the Bible makes it very clear. What he wanted was more important than what God prohibited. Look at the warning in Scripture. And who could write this better than a man who had 700 wives? Lord have mercy. (sighs) Look at Proverbs chapter 5, verse 3 to 5. For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold on hell. What does the Bible mean when it says her lips drip honeycomb? A lot of people think that it meant she had really good chapstick. That's not what it meant. (laughs) Doesn't mean not about her lip gloss either. It means, when you read it in the Hebrew, it means she'll tell you what you want to hear. You're so fine. I wish my husband looked like you. I like the way you smell. You just make my heart move when I see you. (coughs) It's a lie. I always say to people that are in that situation, you may see your secretary or your, that woman at work when she comes to work, but don't forget, when she wake up in the morning, she ugly too. <laughs> she got to brush her, her stink teeth. Come on, let's make it real here. She got bad breath too. You, she, after, after the six hours of putting all her hair on her, like nine layers of makeup, and she coming out like she just came out of a magazine cover, she looking all good. It's looking really, really good. You see her at work and you say, oh, whoo. I was working at, uh, <laughs> I was working at chem- Chemical Bank down in the Wall Street area, down by the, by the, by the highway there in Manhattan. It's a really amazing experience. And we had, a, we had a great team of workers. My supervisor was an Adventist. And uh, we, would, we would get our work done as quickly as we can so we could do Bible studies like 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and we had this Jehovah's Witness guy that worked in the mailroom. He would always come up and taunt us because he'd study what we believe is Adventist and use it against us. And then we had, a, we had another Pentecostal guy. At the time, you could smoke in the offices just before they banned smoking. This was years ago. And he'd smoke, and he, he had a smoke a cigarette in the left side of his mouth, and he always had his left eye closed because it was burning his eye. But he'd go home and read the great controversy or councils on diets and food and know what we shouldn't be eating, and we would come and like lift up my sandwich when I'm having lunch. What's that you eating? Is that pork? You know, always irritating. His name was Earl. I never forgot Earl. But Vincent was the Jehovah's Witness guy that worked in the mail room. 
And Vincent was a trip. So Vincent, he came to work on Monday morning, and he talked about how, much, how good the church service was on Sunday. He was a Jehovah's Witness. He said, Kingdom Hall was so good yesterday. He said, I could face anything. And a lady, tall, blonde, came from the way of the higher gate, from corporate office to the mail room, with a sprayed-on red dress. And Vincent happened to be there at the same time. And we laugh, seemed like for hours, because Vincent leaned over the desk. After he made that statement, he could handle anything. And the only thing he said when she left was, oh, Lord, my God, help me. <laughs> Let me tell you something, brother. When you think you could handle God, the devil will pull out of his, his toolbox another tool that you cannot handle. That's why David could be summarized into not realizing that she may tell you what you want to hear. Her words will satisfy your heart, but smooth lips end up being slippery slopes, and the warm embrace ends up choking the life out of you. Watch out. Women that don't belong to you always make it seem like the grass is greener on the other side, but brother, let me tell you, it's artificial turf. <laughs> Hallelujah. It's artificial turf. That's why the wise man says, look in Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 6, he says, lest you ponder her path of life. Her ways are unstable. You don't know them. You don't know what she's going to do next. She'll tell you one thing, but you don't have a clue what's in her arsenal. And he says in verse 8 of Proverbs chapter 5, remove your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Oh, <laughs> can I tell you another story? So we had this, we were at another church in California. And I would always tell my wife when the devil came to church, I don't want to make women feel bad, but there was this three women that were the devil every Sabbath. And I would always tell what their attitude was when they came to church. Here come the church, decked out and not dressed godly, and they'd sit on the front row and they'd, they'd go like this. And look at me. And I refused to look in their direction the whole sermon. So at the door one day, I'm standing at the door, and one, we're shaking hands as people are leaving, not like all the doors we have, but we're shaking hands as people are leaving church. I just finished the sermon. And a young lady came to the door. This, you would think this is crazy. It is crazy. But let me show you how bold the devil is. She pulled up her shirt and said, how do you like my six-pack? This is in church at the door as we're leaving church. Can you believe that? My wife is standing right there. And she proceeded to say, so when are you going to come visit me? You know what I said? Never. And I never did. She ended up in counseling in my office with her husband. He was an idiot. Because he encouraged that behavior. It was not till I met him that I realized why she was so dizzy. Because I'm about to counsel with this couple. And he said, honey, stand up and show the pastor what you got. Sit down. I don't want to see what you have. And I said, 
That's why your wife is the way she is, because of you. I don't want to use the word idiot, but very few people can. He earned that title, because he was, and you know, they didn't last long. Every time, he said every time he came home, there was a different guy in the front yard. I wonder why. Thank you. Be careful. Young men, be careful. The devil don't want us to go to heaven. And he'll try his best. That's why the words of Christ is understandably clear. The Lord did not minimize the, the, the seventh commandment. He, he amplified it. Look at Matthew 5, verse 27 and 28. I told you, the, jerk, the, the funny part of the sermon is gone. This is the serious part. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 28, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. Amen. Today, the devil is trying his best to get men to be walking around with adulterous hearts. Brethren, pray, put a door at, the, uh, put a door at your heart. Chew, refuse to bring it into your home in movies. Don't just say it's a, it's a movie. No. Don't even bring it in. Some of you women like Lifetime Channel. I'm getting real with you all today. Like to watch all that soap opera? It ain't soap. It's garbage. Some people have been following these soap operas for 50 years. And the actresses, they don't get old. They just get like, they have like nine facelifts later. Their nose is in a different location than it was 40 years earlier. And it's just salacious garbage, satanically motivated to destroy your heart. And some people are looking for love when it's right next to you. Right, Ian? Right next to you. Right, Felicia? Right, Kevin? Right next to you. You can't find outside of marriage what God intends to be only in your marriage. So don't even look for it. What are the lessons from David? Here it is. The thing that you pursued will catch up with you. The one that you eventually get will eventually get you. The desire, of, the, the desire of your heart can become the destruction of your life. The lust that excites becomes the sin that enslaves. But the good news is, there's some good news in David's story. God finally arrested David's attention and led him to true repentance. Look at Psalm 51. And by the way, I love this because David did not resist God's rebuke. Praise God. Look what he said in Psalm 51, verse 1 to 4. He said, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Look what he says. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my what? From my sin. Why did he say that? Because God showed him his sin. He goes on, for I acknowledge my transgression. Why did he do that? When you acknowledge your sin, it's like an alcoholic saying, I have a problem. You can't get help if you don't think you have a problem. I acknowledge. If you don't acknowledge it, you can't get help. Don't blame it on anybody else but you. I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is always before me. 
against you, and here is where sin hits the hardest. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. That's exactly what Joseph said. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Because he knew that every sin is against God. Because God is the one that establishes the commandments. But what is the evidence of, of David's repentance? Here it is, Psalm 51, verse 10. And David prayed the prayer to focus on the place where his problem was, his heart. That's why we began with the commandment, love the Lord your God with how much of your heart? All your heart. David prayed the prayer to focus on the place where the problem was, his heart. What did he say? What did he say? Psalm 51, verse 10. Created me a what? clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Then he prayed, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And then he prayed the prayer that God alone can accomplish. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your generous spirit. And then what did he promise to do? Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. David couldn't do for God later until God changed his heart, cleansed him from his sin, restored the salvation and gave David the platform where he can now say to other people, don't do what I did. David finally considered that God's word was always his safety net. That's why in Psalm 119, verse 11, he said these words, your word, this is the converted David. This is the new David. Your word I have hid in my heart that I might not, what? Sin against you. Brethren, God's word is the guide. Not your feelings, not your emotions, not the moment. God's word is our guide. Can you say amen? How did David get to that place? David irreversibly placed himself under the scrutiny of God. Look what he prayed for God to do. Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. He said, search me, O God. How many of you want God to search your heart today? Search. Don't ask God to search your spouse. Say, God, search me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. When you tell God to try you, he'll put you in circumstances to try you. And then he says in verse 24, and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way what? everlasting. Now, here's the good part of the story. God so completely transformed David's life that David was afterward used as, as an example to future kings as a man of integrity. And you know, when we read the Bible and we read all David's garbage, then we go to first Kings and we say, well, what David is God talking about? You ever said that? You know, we know what David did. It's amazing. People know what other folk do. But they don't know what they do. So God is using David, speaking to Solomon now. Because Solomon is about to make a fool out of himself. He's saying to Solomon, you need to follow the example of your father, David. Now, wait a minute. Why would God say that when God knew what David did? God erased what David did and restored him. That's why these words are powerful. When we read the Bible in its entirety, we have to remember that each one of our lives is on a timeline. Young, foolish, ignorant, old, foolish, ignorant. Makes a, makes a terrible decision. God redeems you. 
You become wiser, forgiven, redeemed, restored. And God uses that part of your life and flushes the rest of it down the drain. He throws in the depths of the sea and he remembers it no more. And he says to everybody there, go looking for your past. No fishing is allowed here. Look at what he said. How beautiful this is. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 38. This is now God is speaking to Solomon about his father David. Then it shall be, if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David and will give Israel to you. God is saying that to Solomon, the son of David. Now, I want you to be amazed by that because the Lord said, if you would do what is right in my sight as David did. You know what's beautiful? I heard one, one, one person say it this way. Where they're talking about it, it doesn't matter. That is talking about the person's past. Where, you, where they're talking about it, it doesn't matter. And where it matters, they're not talking about it. In heaven, they were not talking about David's past anymore. God had now used David as an example of a man that did what was right in God's sight and even kept his commandments. Let me make a point. Only God can take a past and redeem it that way and hold you up as an example of integrity. There's no sin that God doesn't know about. That's why we have to go to the default one, Solomon. I'm moving as quickly as I can. Is that all right? Just hold on. Y'all ain't going anywhere anyhow. Solomon. This one is interesting. Falling in love. I, I, this is how I summarize Solomon. Falling in love, Curtis. Falling in love does not change God's mind. Amen. <laughs> okay, here we go. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. Falling in love does not change God's mind. Some people fall in love with the wrong person, and they think because they fell in love with them that God has now removed his prohibitions. Okay, since you fell in love with him, and he's not what I want you to be with, I'm going to change my mind. No, that's not how it works. Look at God's prohibition. 1 Kings 11, verse 1 and 2. But, that's the transition, but King Solomon loved many foreign or strange women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, the very people that held the Israelites in bondage. Women of the Moabites, he didn't stop, he kept going. Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. He had a black book that made your black book look like ain't even no pages in it. Verse 2. From the nations of whom the Lord has said to the children of Israel, what did he say? You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your heart after their God. And what does the Bible say? Solomon clung to these in love. That's why I say, falling in love does not change God's mind. This is the Solomon class. This class has everything except the willingness to listen to God. You know, some of you ladies would not be in the problems you experience if you would listen to God. Some of you men, too. Let's make it dual gender here. There's only two genders, by the way, in the world. If there's a third one, let me know. 
Because God didn't make three. These are the people that look for love in all the wrong people, in all the wrong places, and think, now God knows I love him. She loved me. No, no. Falling in love does not change God's standard. Some people say, well, there are not enough women in church, so they go looking outside of church. Some people say there's not enough men in church. And you know what I said to somebody who once told me that? I said, have you been overseas? Let me say something, young ladies. Take a mission trip overseas before you marry the wrong man in America. Why am I saying that? Because God sent my wife from England. There was not a woman in America that God wanted me to marry. My wife was born in England. So I waited on the Lord. Okay, I'll say amen myself. Amen. <laughs> don't, just, don't, just, don't just think because he looked good and, you know, he got it all together that God is going to change his mind. God is not the one that gets, his mind does not change based on your likes and dislikes. This is the class that's not satisfied with simplicity, spoiled by a life of excess. Multiple relationships, multiple excuses, distorted interpretation of love. Love for God is in second place. This kind of marriage ends up with one word, vanity. That's why Solomon was able to say, vanity, vanity, it's all vanity. That's why I got to say this here to the young people. And y'all give me grace today. Is that okay? Because I only get to talk one time a year about relationships. But I need to do a whole week on this topic. Fall in love with things that never change. Because I don't look like I did when Angie met me. I have black hair. I could run for long periods of time. I'm not the same guy. Y'all need to help me out, man. Y'all just had me up here talking about myself. <laughs> you know some of y'all don't look the same as you did when you got married. You got your extra teeth. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> got your extra teeth. You know, got your hair piece that you stick on just before you leave the house. You know what I'm talking about. Those people that got one hair, one strand of hair left, and they wrap it around in a circle to cover that. You know what I'm talking about. It's, 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 it's very, it's, I'm not messing with you, Ian. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but guys like Kevin give us hope. He's a, you know, Kevin got it. He's still got everything where it's supposed to be. I'm starting, I'm starting trouble here. I, should, I don't know how to, I don't know. Help me out, Lord. But don't fall in love with things that are going to change. My wife and I, we look at the pictures, and although my wife is changing a lot slower than I am, because I could look at a picture of my wife 12 years ago, and I say, honey, that looked like you took that picture yesterday. God has blessed me with a wonderful wife who has given me the qualities that I could just never thank him enough for. And I think I'm going to make the kingdom because of the wife he gave to me. Amen. That's why when people write us, they say, say hello to your wife. We always get emails, and people say, say hello to your wife. I get short messages from people that watch 3ABN, say hello to your wife. When we travel, the first question people ask me when I land, where's your wife? Because I don't travel without her. And if they want me to travel without her, I say, I'd rather not go. Cancel me. You see, Solomon had a problem. Look at verse 3 and 4, 1 Kings chapter 11. He had a problem, a serious one. He tried to find love in all the wrong places. The Bible says, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. He could, say to, he could say to each one of his wives, he could say to each one of his wives every day, 
Don't tell my wife I came to visit you. <laughs> and he wouldn't stop until he was a thousand in. How? I don't, I don't even want to ask the question of how, how he survived. Come on, man. It take, Jeff, it takes a whole lot to satisfy one woman. Am I telling you right? Can I get an amen, Jeff? <laughs> 700. That's the highest evidence of lunacy. But look at verse 4. For... It was so. When Solomon was what? Old. That his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God as was the heart of his father David. Once again, can God change your past? Come on. God told Solomon, you need to be like your dad. What did his dad do? God wiped out David's past record and said, I'm not referring to the David that messed up. I'm referring to the David that I redeemed. That's God. That's God. Solomon's wives could not turn his heart away if he had committed his heart to God. Solomon's disobedience was the thing that removed God's protection. That's why loyalty to God should not compromise loyalty to anyone else. The unwise decisions that we have made when we were young will remind us when we are old that our decisions were not wise. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Here's what Solomon said in the closing years of his life. And this is a fact based on all. And I have one more example left. Just give me a break. One more example left. Solomon said this at the closing years of his life. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Let's say it together. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Can you imagine how many bottles of makeup this man saw? How many, how many discarded bottles of lipstick and stockings and dresses? 700 wives. How many times did he go out to dinner? Perfume. He didn't even know who wore what. Smell the perfume. How you doing, uh, Sh Shekinah? Oh, no, you're Denina. This man was messed up. Ellen White made this statement. It's short. You'll find it in Prophets and Kings. She says, Solomon had so many women in his life that when he got older, he, he, made, he, had, a, he had an effeminate nature. Because he was around too many women. And my last example, as I transition, go to Genesis chapter 29, verse 20. This is my closing example. What would I say about Solomon? Make sure that your judgment is not a substitute for God's wisdom. The only way to guard your heart is to take God at his word. Here it is. Jacob is the last example. Very short passage, but very telling about the kind of man he was. And he had his issues too. Genesis 29, 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. 
This class is motivated by love, controlled by patience. Young men, let me say something. It's better to wait than to get married too quickly and regret it. Some people, some guys think they need to be married by a certain date. And then some young, some young women feel the same way. But don't rush. When, you, when you're planning for marriage, and I'll talk to the young people in the moment, when you're planning for marriage, let it wait. Let God send the right woman or the right man your way. The story of Jacob, we know he had a lot of issues that came along when he started trying to rush, and we know the rest of that story. But the thing I want to bring out with Jacob's life is he waited. He loved Rachel so much that he was willing to work for her for seven years. He was willing to work for her for seven years. And then when Laban deceived him, he was willing to work for seven more. I'm not going to let her go. My wife and I, we, before we got married, we dated for nine years. I know what it means to wait. Her brothers, their number one aim was to get rid of me. And on the wedding day, they said, you won. And I told them, I don't care what you do. I'm not going anywhere. And I still have that beautiful gift. My angel A, Angela. My brother, be controlled by patience. Good things come to those who wait. See your spouse as a gift, not as a conquest. And if you invest your heart in your husband or wife, your investment will yield some amazing interest. I can tell you that. You'll be in first class together, sitting in hotels together, meeting dignitaries together. Martin Luther said, let the wife make the husband glad to come home and let the husband make the wife sorry to leave. Now, Ben, you're about to be married, so I've got to give you some advice. <laughs> I'm going to hit the young people real quick. Number five, if you are hoping to be married or looking for a relationship, let me give you some dynamic advice. I'm going to begin with a quotation from the book Adventist Homes. All right? This is first for the married people. When the divine principles are recognized and obeyed in this relation, that's marriage, marriage is a blessing. It guards the purity and the happiness of the race. It provides for man's social needs. It elevates the physical, the intellectual, and the moral nature. When you keep that thing the way God intends for it to be, you can only get better. And as the wise man said, as, as, as David, as, as Paul said in the book of Ephesians, he who loves his wife loves himself. And the wise man says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Amen. But then, you know, I'm holding on to my wife. If she looks good, if she looks this good down here, whoo! Wait till we are made perfect in the resurrection or when Jesus comes. Honey, don't worry. I'm going to have muscles eventually. You just hold on. But I've got to talk to the young people quickly. This quotation, this, this quotation for all the, all the single ladies and all the single men. Here it is. Adventist Home, page 71 and 72. If men and women are in the habit of praying twice a day before they contemplate marriage, they should pray four times a day. When such a step is anticipated, you better double your prayer life. Marriage is something that will influence and affect your life, both in this world and in the world to come. Look at the rest. The majority of the marriages of our time and the way in which they are conducted 
Make them one of the signs of the last days. Lord, have mercy. Men and women are so persistent, so headstrong, that God is left out of the question. Religion is laid aside as if it had no part to act in this solemn and important matter. You can't hold together what God created unless God is in it. Very quick text for my young folk. Here it is. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14 and 15. I don't care how good she looks, how good he looks, how good he smells, how good she smells, what he has in the bank, what he doesn't have in the bank, what he doesn't look like, what he don't look like. If you don't use God's word as a guide, what does he say? Let's read this together. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? One of the indicators of a successful marriage is not because you won't have problems. Every marriage has problems. Can we all say amen to that? Amen. We all have problems. We all get on each other's nerves. Especially for those of you that have a lot of passion. My wife and I are passionate. We tell each other how we feel. I don't like that. I don't like that either. That's why we're still married, because we could talk to each other openly. Don't stifle your wife or husband's ability or willingness to be able to say what he or she feels. Be open. Let her be open. You be open. But don't fight to win. Fight to win together. I don't want to win an argument against her because I will never win. Guys, you know that's why we don't win arguments against women. So don't try it. Win your wife, not the argument. Ladies, win your husband. Not the, not the argument. One of the, one of the evidences of a, of, a, of a marriage that made it through the rough times is the 50-year anniversary. I read this story about a man and his wife that was sitting on the couch one day, sitting very close, and they just got into the routine of watching television together. And his wife said, things have really changed. She said, you used to sit close to me. Come on up here, honey. Just come on up here, babe. She said, you, you, you used to sit close to me. And he said, with, with all those muscles disappearing slowly, I could remedy that. So he moved next to her on the couch. And she said, come on up, honey. She said, you used to hold me tight and give me a big hug. He said, I, I, could, I could remedy that. So he put his his now not as so strong arms around her shoulder. Like I'm going to do when my wife gets over here. Come on, honey. Come on, honey. You're making me really, she's making me wait. And he put his arms around her and he said, I could do that. And he gave her a big hug. And she said, you know, do you remember you used to cuddle on my neck and nibble on my earlobes? And he jumped up and ran out of the room. Where are you going? He said, I'll be right back. I'm going to get my teeth. <laughs> if you hang around long enough, you're going to get up and go get your teeth to nibble on your wife's ear. You know, marriage is such a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. It's not without problems. 
It's not without challenges. It's not without difficulty, right, honey? It's not without those hard days when you got to hear the truth that you don't want to hear. That's not marriage. You got to hear the truth and be humble enough to hear it and make some decided changes. You got to be willing enough for your wife to say, I don't like that. Honey, give me time. I'll work on it. I've had those experiences, haven't I, honey? And I have too. And she has too. There were days when I said, I don't like your attitude. <laughs> no, really. And she, hour and a half later, came back with some tea and some cookies and say, and gave me a big hug. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to talk to you that way. That's what a marriage is all about. Let, you, let each other file each other down. Don't trade your wife like a used car because you don't like the way she's thinking today or your husband because you don't like what he said to you or what he did. God can forgive anything that you've experienced. Love is a two-way street. But make sure that your spouse and you and God are on the right side of the street. I don't know if you caught it, but there's only one side of the street where the word love is. It's not on both sides. I just want to put that out there. Love is only on one side. I didn't put love on both sides of that street. It's only on one side. Let me ask a question today. I want to pray for those of you who lost a spouse. Some of you, your spouses are resting in Jesus, waiting for the day of reunion. I know that. I know that's not an easy message for those who has an empty place by them when they go home. I know that. I'm praying for you. Hold on. It's going to be better in the morning. Some have recently lost loved ones. Some have lost a loved one so long ago they don't remember. But if you want to hope, first of all, my appeal is three ways. If you want your marriage to be all that God intends for it to be, this is just to the couples, why don't you stand? If you want your marriage to be all, doesn't matter if she's here or not, she's watching. She'll watch you, she'll watch you stand, Bob, and you get some extra hot chocolate when you go home. <laughs> or, 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 or aroma, whatever it is. Secondly, to the young people, to the single people. You may not be looking for a mate, but you want to fulfill God's plan to be a loving individual. Why don't you stand right now? You may not be right now looking for a mate, but you want to fulfill God's plan that when that time comes, if he sends that person your way, you want to be what God wants you to be and open your heart to that individual. My third appeal is to those who have lost a loved one. And on those days when there's no one to talk to, you say, I'm waiting for Jesus to come so we could talk throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. If that's your desire and you want us to pray for you, why don't you stand? I know it's not easy, but you're waiting for that glorious day, and it's going to be beautiful. And finally, to the single folk, to those who are engaged, you, don't, you haven't said, I do yet, but you're so excited, you can't wait. <laughs> but I want you to be the kind of person who is more concerned about reading God's word in preparation for that day than just giving yourself away. The engaged, there's somebody here today. You can stand up, Ben. No, no I'll let him sit. <laughs> you better sit up there and play that piano. But Pam, why don't you come up and stand by your husband-to-be? 
Why don't you do just I'm gonna do that just for you today. I don't always do that, but he shouldn't feel alone in these moments when you could stand with him. Amen. Every one of us can be a place where God's love is seen. Can we say amen? And lastly, my appeal is for just for those who want to say, I'm not in any one of those categories. I just want to be a loving Christian. I just want to be the kind of person that God wants me to be. And I'm happy where I am. I don't need a man or a woman in my life to make me happy. I got Jesus. Amen. God didn't make everybody married. God didn't make everybody to be married. But he sure didn't make everybody to be a person of love for God. I think I covered all the bases. I keep telling Dee to get married, but I don't think there's a man on earth that can handle Dee. <laughs> I love you, Dee. We got a great relationship. But praise God, we can be what God wants us to be. I, wanted to, I was looking forward to this because marriage is a, love is a two-way street, but make sure that you and God and your spouse are on the side of love and you're moving in the direction of the kingdom. Can we pray? Loving Father in heaven, I thank you for love, a love that I know now that when my wife is not around or when she's sick or when I think about her, my heart flutters. My heart melts. My heart is so satisfied when I hear her voice. When we sit down and play games together or in the store together or on a plane together or at a beach together or on vacation together or visiting family together or driving in a car together, the word together just makes me feel good. Together. And I pray for those who have had bumps in their marriage. Lord, you're not surprised by that, but you can heal everything. You can fix everything that ever broke and make it stronger. We don't have to wallow in the failures of our past, but we could be like David. And God will say of us, if you would walk in my way as David did, yes, the past is redeemed. The present makes sense. Bless all who are standing here today, whatever the categories, Father, May we first love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And whether we are married, divorced, remarried, widowed, whether male or female, whether we are hoping for marriage, engaged, or whether we're just happy by ourselves, may we exemplify the God of love that this world may know that the best is yet to come. And we praise you and we thank you in the glorious and holy name of Jesus. And all the church said, Amen. Amen.